Welcome, everyone, to another episode of One of 200, the New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. I am Branko Machetich. Uh, we have a, a fantastic guest uh, here with uh, me and Kyle, Kyle Church, my co-host. Uh, how are you going? Yeah, not too bad. I'm stuck in Auckland, uh, like so many of our <laughs> listeners. Uh, we, we all feel the pain, uh, except for me, because I've been <laughs> in a completely different country while this is all happening. But, you know, in, uh, I've, I've been through it. It's not nice, but but hopefully we're getting to the end of it. And and to introduce our, our guest that I teased before I uh, went to, to Kyle, a little, a little unorthodox uh, radio technique there, uh, we have Hayden Donnell, uh, who uh, a renowned New Zealand journalist. He has been, uh, he, he's the producer of, of Media Watch. He does some freelance writing. Uh, he, he was on the spinoff. Uh, that's some very, very great and, and often entertaining pieces. So we're very, very glad to have him here. How are you going, Hayden? Kia ora. I'm going pretty well. I'm going okay. I'm enduring lockdown as best I can. Well, that, that's the most we can hope for. And I think, you know, uh, in an episode where we're going to talk about the, the media, its relation to New Zealand public, uh, where it stands in our uh, political discourse. I think it's important for our listeners to get a sense that you, someone of the media, someone working within the mainstream media space, you're a normal human being, you're going through the same uh, <laughs> tough times that everyone else uh, is going in New Zealand. You know what? Worse. You know what? Worse. <laughs> and my, my daughter was born two days before lockdown. So, oh, congratulations. And as well. So, oh. I guess, I guess like that's kind of like worst case scenario in a way, but actually it's been fine. I'm a bit of a, I don't know. I'm a bit of, what am I? I'm a lockdown, I'm a lockdown contrarian. I don't mind it that much. <laughs> There's a lot of complaining about lockdowns, but I, I, I personally am okay with it. I get that people do struggle, but. Um, no, there's no doubt it, it works for people, some people. Uh, you know, that is, uh, I, I find that difficult to, to believe myself. Uh, but, you know, we, we have to look outside of our own experiences, our own, our own biases, and, and, and have a broader look at the world, which I guess is kind of what we're, uh, we're here to talk about, incidentally. That's right. That's right. Well, how have you, tell me very quickly, how have you found working in the media space under lockdown? Uh, and, and I guess, presumably from home, you know, you, you wouldn't be going into the office, right? Uh, a little a little bit difficult I'm not allowed into the office I do everything a bit differently and um, I have a, a family that I'm meant to take care of in between stuff but I'm kind of used to that honestly yeah it's fine it's fine I feel guilty all the time <laughs> I feel guilty because I can hear someone crying like even right now I can hear someone crying upstairs I should be doing something about it but I'm not. And so it is quite distracting in that sense. Um, yeah. But I've never liked offices. I hate offices because people can walk past your screen all the time. This is I don't true. like that. They're judging you. Know, Everyone's judging you and everyone is looking at you. You are under social surveillance from your coworkers. You're under direct uh, surveillance from your employer, of course, from your boss. Uh, so yeah, double. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting question. The the uh, working from home versus working from office divide. I think people have different views on this, especially people who have just got a taste of working from home um, under the 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 pandemic, under all the lockdowns. Um, so I mean, I you know, I find I like to have the option. Uh, in an ideal world, you know, you could sort of do work from home, work from the office. 
I'm a little skeptical of this whole move of everyone going home. And, you know, now you have software on your computer watching you as you work and what's happening on your screen. And, you know, you have to pay for your electricity uh, that you that you work from and, and all of that. I'm a little skeptical of that. Yeah, I, I'm a happy medium guy. I, we're not talking about the media right now, but I think if my, in my ideal world, there'd be like a small base that, you know, you don't have to have seats for necessarily everyone in the city center or something. You can go there when you need to, but then a lot of the time you're at home and you can change a nappy when you want to, you know, just as a treat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's in some ways probably very good for, for new parents. Um, although it is, yeah, I, I can imagine it must be very stressful to, to have to be a parent and, and do your job. Um, but, you know, why don't we get to that job? Uh, you know, you have a very important job uh, in, in the space of uh, uh, politics. Uh, the media is very important. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, even if uh, we do criticize the media from time to time in this, uh, on this podcast. Um, but I guess let's start with, you know, you're someone who came from, I guess, uh, more kind of independent media initially, right? And you moved into more kind of mainstream space, let's say. Uh, how has that transition been? What, what have your... Uh, what have you noticed, I guess, from moving from one to the other? Well, I, I mean, to recap my career, I started at the Rodney Times as a community paper and did like three years of community papers. Then I was at the Herald for four years. I worked in PR. For, sorry, I worked oh. in PR for a year and a half for a mayor called Bob Harvey out west. And then I worked at the Herald for four years. And then I went overseas and came back and did some independent media like the spinoff and now, so yeah, I've had a kind of a pretty varied career. Now I'm in RNZ, which is the first public media I've worked for. Um, but I still do 20 hours a week of freelance. So I guess, yeah, I, I don't know. I Working in this, moving into RNZ, <laughs> uh, I guess the biggest change is doing a job that gets me actively hated by my peers. <laughs> I think that was, because just to clarify what my job is, I mean, just, Media Watch is like the media analysis show in New Zealand. Uh, and it's probably one of the tougher media criticism shows, I'd say. Like a lot of the kind of other media critics are reasonably soft, like Duncan Grieve at the spinoff, bless him, doing a lot of media business stuff, but he's not he's not hammering the media too strongly, quite frankly. And he is so, the media. Yeah. I mean, you might argue. Yeah, that's the issue, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, we're probably the, the one that, that journalists hate the most um yeah i don't know what else in terms of moving into the space besides like (laughs) it's been kind of eye-opening moving into a public sector organization because there there is a little bit less spiky edges to the work and a little bit you can like have workers rights and like a collective contract and no one's trying to you know, bust your union like they were at the Herald at the time that I was there, you know? Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, you know, it, should I even do it? I mean, the Herald, the Herald yeah, I, think so. when I was there, had, they had a collective contract, but they were trying to get everyone else, everyone to start on another contract, pay like $7,000 more so that they could get all the benefits removed from the collective contract. I mean, this is, this is, this is, a, you know, there's just, and the, the, the Christmas parties are less lavish but you feel safer and more relaxed on a day to day. I don't know. That's <laughs> lavish in itself in this day and age. <laughs> Christmas party, you'd be lucky if you get a bloody slice of cake. You get like a little cookie 
and a pat on the back and told to go home and not cry. That's the Christmas party in public media because they don't want to get OIA by the Herald to say that they gave a worker like even a single glass of wine um, or a ham. But, Twenty thousand dollars for alcohol, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, imagine boozy bash at RNZ, <laughs> ham and wine. These guys are blowing more than thirty k on their 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 Friday night drinks, but no one's OIAing them. <laughs> my my uh, th- this is a, a slightly off topic. My my friend always had a great idea for uh, an OIA, actually at Lagoima, which is to to basically request all the money that gets spent uh, in Auckland Council to uh, do uh, Lagoima requests for for how much art costs to, to install. Um, cause he, he thought that actually the cost of finding these costs was more than the cost <laughs> of the stuff everyone's complaining about, which I think probably is, is on the money. I suspect. I think someone has actually like the goimid, like how much time the council spends re- replying to the taxpayers unions. Goimers or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> Just to, I mean, do we need to clarify that when we're talking about official information act, like freedom of information act of New Zealand, this is what we're talking about right now. Um, I, I think yeah. hopefully, uh, yeah. Although, yes, the international one, certainly. Um, it does drive me crazy. It is a massive bugbear of mine that we OIA the stupidest, pit, most pitiful stuff, like spending a tiny amount on a workers' Christmas party. And we and uh, Auckland Council will spend a billion dollars, just tip it down the drain into a bit of tar seed, you know, Howick or something. And we just, we won't even care. We're like, oh, well, people spend a billion dollars on roads all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a lot of the time with, with those kind of narratives, I always consider that, you know, the, the public service group, whoever's responding, is, is more than happy to be fielding the, the huge number of just fucking stupid OIAs that they get because it, it slows the rest of it down. It slows down any actually important investigation. Like, okay, wow. cool. We'd like, cool. They're asking about that piece of art. That's one Laguima. Cool. Two weeks. That's, <laughs> you know, we're doing that. And then another one and then another one. Meanwhile, um, we've got that cabinet um, advice for moving to level three. Uh, and it still hasn't been released and it's like three months. Yeah. I don't know what, I mean, I just think that's, they could be doing that. They could be releasing that. I don't know. Sorry, too I don't busy. Know whether it's, <laughs> too busy responding to the taxpayers' union. Do, do you find having worked, uh, you know, at a place like the Herald and, and then also for Community Paper, which, by the way, great reminder for me to, to do my homework before doing the, uh, the interviews. But, uh, you know. No, I've just ha- been doing a... this for so long. I've, I've done <laughs> yeah. so many billion things. Now. Well, is that helpful for you uh, when you do Media Watch to, you know, to, to sort of be able to get into the heads of, or at least, you know, you know, okay, well, I sort of have an inkling of how this story came together. Well, I have an inkling of like, this could have been done differently. Uh, you know, I've seen it done differently. Does, does that ever happen when you're, you're producing the show? I think it just gives me a background sense. I know that maybe commercial media won't feel like I have the sense, but it gives me a background sense of the actual incentives that are driving them. So I was a homepage editor at the Herald. And when I was there, I reckon I was probably just about the worst thing that ever happened to journalism because when they were there, I love, I'm a gamer. I love games. But when, when I was there, they introduced a new software 
I can't even chart beat. And so when I was editing the homepage, I could see green arrows going up on the stories that are doing well. No. And red arrows going down on the stories that were doing bad. And so my brain was going like, pop, pop, green arrows. Oh my God, I got to get, I used to pride myself on getting all green arrows on that screen. But it, you, you kind of can, when you're doing that kind of clip driven, you kind of forget what's actually <laughs> important journalism or what's it's not. Because you really are trying to maximize clicks. And that was the model. That was a dominant model back then. And it was leaving, leading us down a path to despair and ruin, as we were kind like of a, we were aware of even then. But uh, it's a yeah. mini Twitter. It's a mini Twitter yeah. specifically for the people who work at, at the Herald or I guess any other media company that you Yeah, because it's not tied to oh. like your pay, you know, it's not tied to right. your um PDPs. Um, but it's dope it is dopamine in a way. Like it, it does and and yeah, but I mean, your your organization's success is tied to, in a weird way, people clicking on your stories, no matter what their quality is. And so um, it, it has a way of removing you from the sensibilities of someone like a reader necessarily, who might look at something and be like, look at all this trash here. And you'll be looking at it being like, the green arrows are going up. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, I wonder, is, yeah. is that what kind of accounts for the uh, just the, the constant oversaturation of, of crime stories in New Zealand media? Uh, I mean, you know, that I mean, that's that look that that stuff sells everywhere. Of course, it's not unique to New Zealand, but I just feel like the amount of, you know, you go on the top 10 most read stories in the Herald and like the first five are like stabbing and Tokodoa or something and then like car crash and like Manukau. So, you know, it's, it's just like it's it those seem to be they trigger some sort of you know something in our lizard brains and people go for it and maybe there's someone sitting out back there you know as you say watching the green arrows go and they go okay more of this yeah i think that there is something like our amygdala gets triggered or whatever by seeing enough crime stories and there is like research that obviously that these affect people's perceptions of how much crime is happening I don't re- particularly recall them doing that much better, depending on what they were. It was an mm. unusual crime for sure. Right. Um, what, wait, somebody difficult. I want to somewhere. segue here. What is an yeah. unusual crime? Oh. What what reaches? I mean, that's either particularly disgusting or particularly weird, or you know, so it's not like you know, crash kills two. Okay. Necessarily, you know. That's just kind of depressing and horrible. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to read that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, there's a really strong media tradition of and of crime being an important thing to cover as well. And it's not really something that I've devoted enough thought to to really speak at length at, on on a podcast. But a but podcast, but it is something that I've been considering lately. Like, what is the actual value in us mm. doing a lot of this coverage? And a lot of it is kind of intrusive for no real social benefit like people will Mm. say what to to alert people to the prospect of crime or like to show the justice system and work it's all kind of tenuous actual justifications that we do for this type of reporting and really mainly i think it's just prurient and kind of curiosity and um it's not there's not really a lot of social justification to it outside of the fact that as you say it does do pretty well 
and it probably does sell a few copies. There's one possible justification I could I could think of for it, and I, we can cut this if this ends up uh, <laughs> being irrelevant. But uh, I remember a friend of mine found an old like some old Auckland newspaper. I can't remember what it was. Maybe maybe this. Yeah, no, I can't remember. Uh, uh, and it was like one of his, I know, like, like a great grandfather or someone, you know, along those lines. And it was this incredibly detailed, very unlike the crime stories of, of today, where it's very perfunctory and it's just like the, the bare details, maybe a police press release, a police quote, and that's it. This was like the most detailed rundown of a man's attempted suicide that I have, I've, ever read in my entire life i was a content warning i'm very sorry if uh, you know that uh, it's uh, upsetting i, I didn't uh, warn that beforehand but um uh, basically i mean i was i was amazed at how this this reporter was able to get the the thing that the guy said when he when he tried to slash his throat in public sort of a a background of like his social economic situation the scene of, of the people trying to stop him that you know what happened when he went to the hospital all this stuff and it was you know i would say probably like a 600 800 word story incredibly detailed and i looked at you know this was like that morning and the 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 paper would have come out you know either like in the morning or the afternoon and you know that's a fascinating historical record and I, to me, that's really the only justifiable thing. Otherwise, I, I you know, to, to be able to look back and go, wow, okay, so this is an interesting part of my family history I didn't know about. Beyond that, yeah, I don't think that there's much social value, you know, if it's just kind of... I mean, it's talk. probably, I, I mean, it probably is nuanced in these shades of grey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a, a lot of what I, was, what I was asked and what lots of people as journalists have been asked to do in the name of crime reporting and reporting on tragedies has been deeply emotionally harmful and damaging both to the journalists and the people that they've been covered, that have been covered. And, you know, it, it's something that's normalized is death knocks. Oh no, God. Yeah. Go into detail on exactly what that is for people who don't know. I was about to bring this up. Yeah. So, I mean, de death knocks, is what is a journalistic slang term for knocking on the door of the family of a person who's just been killed or maimed or murdered, you know, and asking them for their take on it. And so it's always kind of justified as uh, sometimes a family will want to pay tribute to the person involved. And so it's worth doing it for that. But more often than not, actually, it traumatizes the family <laughs> uh, in, a, in a way like that feels disrespectful to them in one of the hardest times of their lives and also the journalists involved. And there's lots of people that have really suffered and sometimes left the industry as a result of having to do this stuff. And it's like quite, it's a thing that people are asked to kind of emotionally cut off a part of themselves. And it, I find it, and I think that it hasn't been examined within the industry enough, like whether this is truly a necessary thing and actually whether um, this should be a normal part of any job. And it's kind of like got this toughen up culture. When I was at the Herald, sorry to David Fisher about this, but and I'm, I think he's probably changed on this, but David Fisher did a, did a um, training session for us essentially on this. Jesus. And, and one of the stories that he told was... Um, a kid had died 
in a river and there were two families involved somehow like two kids had died and there were two families involved so he sent a reporter oh. to each of their houses the family's houses and they each got turned away he asked them to go back they each got turned away the reporter said i want to come home and he said no swap houses so that a different reporter was appearing at the door oh. the next day and like this is this is just i don't know there's a culture of hard emotionless reporting and i don't know whether the um public benefit analysis has been done uh, adequately to justify that kind of behavior <laughs> in, no, absolutely. and 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 the, the older i get the more i resent even having to the minimal amount of participation i did in it and the fact that people often young people are being asked to do this work let alone the families who i've seen talking about how intrusive and painful it was just part in of the way that think... young reporters are getting asked to do it, it almost sounds like some kind of hazing like you have to do your dues. Well, you know what? There is this kind of idea of to be a good reporter, you have to be kind of what you see in the movies, ruthless, you know, you're gonna get the story no matter what. And I feel like this, you know, that sounds like a way to kind of like induct people into that kind of idea. But see, I, I actually think that that is not necessarily the way that you uh get get the story yes you have to be persistent with with certain stories of course and 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 you know you have to to some extent kind of you know be willing to be told no or be willing to be told you know go fuck yourself you know the at, at worst um but i don't think you have to be sort of that that aggressive i actually think sometimes you can build trust with people by 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 not doing that um but that's not the image that we have in our heads of what makes a great shoe leather reporter you know and this it, is and other thing as well about. Whereas like, you know, you have that persistence, but where are you applying that? And you know, are you applying it to a bereaved family or are you applying it to like a, a politician yeah. or a mega corporation? You know, yeah. there's, there's a huge goal journalistic adage, right? The journalistic adage that, that's so good, I wonder how it even got into the you know industry lingo, which is, you know, your job is to um, uh, comfort the afflicted, the, the comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm. And that's true. And and when i mean what is the opposite of afflicting the comfortable if not you know pestering the family of someone whose relative is just to die you know i uh, i mean you're reflecting the very uncomfortable there um so yeah i think that but i think that also these experiences these hard experiences that journalists have within the industry leads to that sense that other people don't understand them as well and also that kind of closed ranks like fuck you um attitude that some you can sometimes develop to critics i wonder if there's um, an intent to that or if it's just so institutionalized at this point that it's like just by the by like but i can i can almost imagine like like people like murdoch or whoever going like okay cool we we need to make sure that the public hate the people who work for us so that they never empathize with the public. <laughs> I mean, I just don't, I, I fundamentally don't think that there's any tactical decisions <laughs> of that, of that nature being made, like having worked in enough media organizations and it's just humans, you know, and the bung and the, like, yeah, I'd, 
like in terms of just like no one has a great no one just the same reason that conspiracies almost don't work you know because there's too much human fallibility in the system to really actually come up with such a coherent plan across so many people i feel like the same thing afflicts a lot of media organizations there might be kind of a general vague direction that's um operating at the top but there's nothing to the extent of like that kind of mass top-down master planning that controls every aspect what the, the people <laughs> the people involved are just not smart enough you know the, yeah. the middle managers there's, it's there's pretty dark. I mean, <laughs> the editors are not that smart sorry guys uh <laughs> i just have never been that impressed by my my bosses that i'm like you could really institute a kind of public relations uh master stroke to <laughs> you know and, manipulate and- the public in seriousness, though, I think the rubric I tend to use is a lot of journalists or reporters who are, you know, part of their role is being active on social media mm. or on, you know, other other forums like via email, being contactable or being an interface with the public um, are very much that part of their role is to act as a buffer between the public and management in the same way that like a customer service center is. So their health and safety and their psychological well-being is not at the top of the KPIs. It is, are these people sending me hate mail or are they sending my reporters hate mail? You look, as long as it doesn't get to me, that's cool. I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder whether it's anything explicit like that so much as just like something like Twitter is just so integral to having a, to being able to do the job now. It absolutely ruined my life. I had to get Twitter when I started at the Herald because I was like doing live updates on news and I had to get it because that was basically the way that you got live updates first. And it has basically shaped the entirety of my life since then. Uh, But I mean, I I think that it's it's the same reason. Like lots of journalists have to go on it essentially in order to feel like they're across the news and what other people are covering. But but that's also the management don't feel that Twitter it's such a distorting force. Uh, it, it, it is representative of a very tiny group of people. Uh, and, and, you know, I might agree with them on maybe 60% of things, but I think it's a very, uh, it ends up kind of, uh, it's a funhouse mirror through which to, to look at the world. And then that, that ironically leaves reporters in some ways less uh, capable of, of, of doing their job, less capable of, of, of looking at the news and, and, and reporting on it. Yeah, I think so. There's, there's, there's the upsides and downsides. It shapes narratives in a way that is probably harmful and leaves you out of touch with the general populace in some ways. Well, I think uh, it has to be like incredibly high number of um, like uh, high amount of tweet content is just like media criticism. Yeah. Like, and not, also, and not it gives me a lot of ideas. I have to say, it's like <laughs> that, what is that drill tweet? You know, drunk driving. Uh, you know may kill people but it gets you to work on time so who's to say whether it's bad or not (laughs) that's like me and twitter you know (laughs) you know i know it's negative in a lot of ways but god it gives me some good ideas sometimes so you haven't crashed the Uh, car yet yeah i I mean he he produces media watch who can say Let me uh, let me ask you about um, another type of news, which, uh, like crime, arguably should not exist. Uh, which is it's it's not as bad as New Zealand. I will I'll preface by saying, but still, uh, polling, right? What what 
role should polling, particularly, I guess, party polling, uh, particular candidate polling, what role should they actually play? How should we treat that, uh, uh, you know, with our press? Uh, because, of course, we know that, that polls have a way of shaping reality. You know, if somebody's going up, perhaps voters uh, or, or looks like they're going to win, voters don't turn out. If uh, it looks like someone's doing uh, badly, so as voters actually end up turning out in, in higher numbers to make that happen. What, what, where do you stand on, on the question of how we use these things? Oh, I, I actually don't know <laughs> what the media should do in terms of its treatment of polling. I mean, I know on a micro level that I'd have some notes on polling, like preferred prime minister is a nonsense poll in New Zealand <laughs> context kind of thing, you know, like, mm. and... And probably the, the worst aspect of them is that because the media invests so much money in them, they do feel like they have to shape a narrative around them. And you have Tova, Tova O'Brien and News Hub essentially came out with a nothing poll a couple of days ago. How long ago was it? Time is a flat circle. That sounds about right. Uh, but, yeah. And it showed nothing. It was like everything was within the margin of error, but you still have to craft a very um, dramatic narrative because you've invested so much money into it. You can't um, say uh, this poll was a complete flop and we wasted like the thousands of dollars. Yeah. Shit. Sorry, everyone. So is that the fault of the poll or the fact of the economics involved or just that the media has to, is, it has, a, and it has a general inherent addiction to some sort of interest in drama because it has to have an audience. And so then narratives get shaped around what are essentially numbers within the margin of error i don't know what's what's the problem here what came first the poll the chicken or the egg you know the poll of the journalism um <laughs> so, i'm sorry there's not a more clear answer well, but, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if uh, if anyone knows I'm, I'm sure even the journalists don't right that's that's i guess part of it it's uh the polls shape reality reality ends up shaping the polls and we're sort of uh yes. we're in the flat circle that you talked about that's absolutely correct. And I'm sure there are other parts of journalism where I've felt the same thing, where it's a feedback loop. But that mm. is essentially it, isn't it? It's a feedback loop. Judith mm. Collins is in trouble. And, and that has a way of reinforcing itself. As soon as a number shows something, the narrative becomes about that number, and then the number reinforces and solidifies until an action is taken. In this case, Simon Bridges reascending or something. Uh, like Jesus from the tomb, and and, and uh, yeah, and and then so it goes. The next poll will show something else, and the narrative we will be shaped around that. Yeah, that is a problem. It probably is a problem, but also I think they are showing something real because people don't like Judith Collins. I don't know where I stand. I really don't. <laughs> I don't think it's not reflecting reality in any way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah and, yeah. and people have seen through media narratives in the past. Like, for instance, COVID, right? Um, there was a huge anti-lockdown media narrative from Mike Hosking and others at Newstalk ZB, whole host of columnists at the Herald, for instance. But then whenever you did public polling on it, it was still strongly in favour. So it seems like there are some things that are essentially immune to media narratives and they're not as powerful as we yeah. believe they are. I wonder if there's a, there's a gap there as well between um, you know, public issue polling, where it's a specific set of questions and popularity polling, which is 
you know, political PR and, and image management is so tied up with that, like with the media in the first place, um, that it has these established feedback loops that asking a public service poll question just isn't. Kudos to the National Party, though, because they're, they're going through a real act of trying to defy this, what we're talking about right now. They're defying the polls. They're running a very ex a lengthy experiment and not ditching Judith Collins despite repeated bad polls. So maybe, I mean, maybe they're running an experiment to see whether this feedback loop really is real and does. Maybe it's uh, all for the greater good. Well, Th yeah. There's a, you know, there, there's a lesson from some recent political events, which is to just completely ignore the polls, uh, mm. to, you know, to, to in, a, in a manner of speaking, to out alpha the polls and just say, nah, screw it. I'm, uh, that's, that's nonsense that I'm just going forward with that. And it's, and it's worked sometimes. It has worked. Chloe, Chloe Swalbrook is an example of that, and Trump is an yeah, example yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah, two really Chloe similar politicians. politicians. <laughs> Chloe Swalbrook flexed on the on, on yeah. those polls. Definitely, she she pulled an alpha move, and it, and it worked. I mm -hmm. just don't know how. I really, I am a believer that there is in somewhere a hard wall of reality that people will meet. But I think sometimes if you don't believe in reality. You can achieve quite remarkable things. Well, we actually have a um, podcast about that um, <laughs> with, with um, Hugh Morgan. Uh, he did a campaigns podcast called Blueprints, um, and here's a two-part episode about the uh, Auckland Central campaign uh, and what they did to actually overcome that early polling um, and and organize effectively to turn out the vote. Mm. Shit, I should have listened to that before I did a little profile on Chloe recently. Hey, you can still well, listen to it. Maybe not too late if you haven't if, if you haven't filed the story. I uh, know. I have filed it. Oh, no. Very sorry. <laughs> no, I'm very sorry. Of, well, you know, I was just thinking of uh, another case of of um, where media narrative did not eventuate into into reality was uh, Red Peak. I was I was talking to someone about this the other week. Wow, that's and, a throwback, uh, man. I don't know. Yeah. Well, because from the vault, I I was you know I don't know what what how old i was at the time but uh you know i uh even with my skepticism of the the media i thought to myself like wow there's real momentum for this people really seem to be into this flag and you know it was a, it was a cool flag and uh i my mistake as as a as a uh, youthful uh fresh-faced lad was to think that oh a bunch of stories that are being written about it well that clearly means that this is organically very popular and especially popular among the people who will actually vote and it turned out to be a completely a media phenomenon. Nothing behind it. Yeah, this is Bronco's um, origin story, actually, about how he became a journalist. <laughs> after that outrage, I decided, <laughs> after being lied to, uh, I, I, I knew I had to, to go into independent media. Um, I think that that's possibly, uh, this is maybe a bit tenuous, but we're talking about Twitter being a bit removed from reality. I think that's possibly a sort of semi-related phenomenon there where, Connected media people were not in touch with John Key's Middle New Zealand. <laughs> you know, um, the silent majority, what did he call them or whatever. And and the people that we see necessarily talking in media circles are not necessarily representative of a broader populace. Yeah, I think especially and, in the opinion sections, which tend to be the ones which push this kind of, these kind of narratives, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where the media is obviously tremendously powerful in, in 
every country. Uh, but uh, the media can't always by itself engineer an outcome. Um, it, it, you know, it can do a lot to push things into a certain direction, but there has to be something underlying there that it will actually hitch onto. It's not enough for just there to I don't be. Know. Have you followed the time. Jeremy Corbyn saga? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, well, but hey, look, like I said, that did hitch onto something. It hitched onto certain uh, fears in the, in, in a certain part of the British population. It, it uh, hitched onto, I think, a perception that unfortunately people, people had about Corbyn and, and about the kind of, you know, political tendency that, that, that he was a part of. And I think, uh, for that reason, it was able to work, and because it was so relentless and long, I mean, you know, we we forget actually that that lasted years, and it really seven years. Up. It's still continuing, actually. It's a it's a decade. Right, it's, not, yeah, it's, right. a, it's it's incredible. Yeah, people are so, so you know, I mean, congratulations to them. They they worked hard for it, and they they got the result they wanted. Yeah, I'm skeptical of this idea of sort of media narrative shaping in the New Zealand context necessarily. <laughs> Over there, like the British press really do just seem to pick a winner um succession style right they they just and and there maybe it didn't work with corbin for a while until they found the right things just have yeah. to search around yeah i mean they found the right things enough and, they, attacked and eventually you'll find something i think they got yeah. the other key thing um in terms of hitching hitching the narrative to something was that they got buy-in from aspects of the party itself right yeah. um so you had a whole range of uh different people within labor who were later given um, peerages by the Tories uh, to come out and regularly speak in the media about um, how much of a piece of shit Corbyn was. Uh, and you know, it helps, it, it helps. It, it came, uh, it, it, it was a package deal with a uh, internal party mutiny, essentially. Um, and that, that is, I think, a big part of the reason why. Because if your own party is not standing next to, uh, behind you, uh, the people go, well, hold on, well, maybe... Maybe some of this is true. I mean, why would all these people, you know, try and destroy this person? Uh, let, let's move on to, to even more dangerous uh, territory than, than Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which is, uh, is I want to ask you, as someone uh, who's moved into to, uh, mainstream news, I'm, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to know, as I'm certainly interested as well. Um, I mean, what, who are the people that, that populate our media in New Zealand? You know, is there a particular politics? Is there a particular worldview, a particular background that they share? Is it is a hodgepodge of things? You know, what what is uh, the behind the scenes uh, of the media? Um, I with I would qualify this by saying I don't know everyone in the media. What? <laughs> <laughs> but isn't, um, your jo- isn't that your job? Is to media watch? <laughs> it's so true. I've failed. Uh, if I had to do like broad strokes, I would say actually probably especially the younger people within the media are majority probably liberal or left wing and there is probably quite a more conservative upper crust that is especially in places of management and sort of industry veterans. But I would say probably, the I mean, if we're talking about political views, I'd say it's probably generally more liberal than not and you could you could you could probably pick the ones um <laughs> we're not yeah, gonna name anyone uh this evening yeah. but um <laughs> you know tweet tweeted us um have some guesses about what we would have guessed 
Halo yeah. is writing down a list of names on a huge piece of reefer right now. I can see how many. Yeah. Jason Wolf. That's actually one I I I assume. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. He's a mystery to me, actually. Uh, you're listening, Jason. That you are. Um, You'd be surprised. You'd uh, be surprised. Well, you were saying, if if I can uh, uh, mention this, you, you were saying as well that that really in in the kind of newsrooms you've been around, politics is not really discussed. It's it's very frowned upon to even even bring up what your beliefs may or may not be. Yeah, and but that's related to I think the kind of traditional news values that are drummed into you that mm. if you do show any sort of political bias, and you'll be deeply compromised. Of course, this is all a bit of a uh, facade and uh, uh, yeah a charade I guess where people obviously hold deep political views all of them do but then obscure it for the purpose of um, sort of play acting neutrality <laughs> in their job and, and, and you can see what the, the benefits of that are you know you get those drummed into you it's about reflecting both sides and all this sort of stuff um, mm not being biased against any particular side but but yeah well is that where a lot of the horse race stuff that i think you know a lot of people find frustrating or <laughs> uh maybe maybe vacuous is that where it comes from you can't talk about yeah. beliefs principles values so you just talk about who's up who's down you can't talk about what's right and what's wrong because that would be to express an opinion that would be get you in trouble with the taxpayers union or something you know, it's kind of lodging a complaint of bias. But it means that you're talking about politics in a way that's not meaningful to anyone, mm. uh, you know, or a way that doesn't reflect anyone's real reality. It's kind of almost worse at RNZ, where they're so terrified of getting defunded by the next national government. <laughs> uh, this is, I don't know this for sure, but I mean, this is what my impression I mean, where you just, you're so studiously down the middle. Where even if someone was like, you know, we should kill all the Kiwis, you know, you'd still be like, like the birds, you know, you'd still be like, you know, National Party's proposal to kill Kiwis meets stern opposition. <laughs> wait, 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 no, because I, I feel like how it would be is that it would be, we should kill all the Kiwis in quotes, says yeah. Collins, um, yes. which is actually a lot worse. Yeah. So I, I I just think that it's kind of a, while it has some uses, it's it's the same in the US, right? Where where it just essentially means that you have to cover things in a brain dead way. And um, it's not biased to say that some things make more sense than others. It's not biased to say like a particular COVID lockdown policy is more, has more, backing in science than another you know if you do the work then you can make factual assertions and not everything sits on a political spectrum of you know you you have to perfectly balance left and right you'll find the truth in the middle and we're, mm. we're addicted to that way of thinking where we're trying to find we have the saying if you're hated by the right hated by the left, oh no don't say it no oh god i mean <laughs> no it, it just might mean that you're a fucking idiot you know <laughs> As like a bipartisan agreement on how much of a dick you are. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I think that we should be 
more willing to make um, truth statements in general. And this is probably not news to the listeners of your podcast. I really like the reporting that someone like Mark Golder does, where he is strongly critical of things in the government's response, but he's also will say that a, a national party is not informed by science or that someone is failing on climate action from either side, you know? Like, when you can come up with a reporting and the facts that back up an assertion like that, you should make it. And you shouldn't just be like, Simon Bridges says this, and yeah, Stuart Nash says that. And I, I feel like that's not this, good reporting. I feel like there's been this extreme slippage um, to a, objective, meaning... Um, well, objective meaning balanced, meaning uh, everyone given equal airing. Mm. Um, because objective does not mean that you're necessarily listening to everyone uh, because some people are just not worth listening to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, this is... This it's become conflated. ...in the US, where you do have a party slipping into, like, sort of fascism and racism, and you have a media system that's sort of bound by the idea that the two parties are basically respect respectable if biased in their own ways and you have to kind of cut it down the middle mm. i mean the, these media values are just ill-equipped for the, the the media value of neutrality is ill-equipped for a situation where either political party becomes extreme and so you mm. get um well i don't know this is what jay rosen says but symmetrical reporting of asymmetrical realities right where um we are we are one where one one thing that one party is doing is so much worse, but still gets reported in the exact same terms and, and ways as the other in the name of balance. And party doesn't have to refer to a political party either. Um, it can just refer to a, a separate set of ideas. So we've got um, yeah. the anti-vaxxers getting inordinate amounts of time um, and, this is and press at the moment. The- Whenever they did the uh, the 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 anti lead in the water stuff, it would always be here's a op-ed from a scientist, and then here's an op-ed from some guy who's not into having lead in the water. And it's like th- these are the two viewpoints you have, and you see them side by side, and you go, oh, well that this this guy is on equal footing with like this person who actually knows what to talk about. Uh, and I feel like that's that's sort of what's going on there. I mean, at the same time, you know, I think about some of the situation in the U.S. There is this. Uh, problem where the media for a long time has been treating the Republican Party like a like a very normal party, but then there's also now this this whole other because people felt with Trump, you know, we have to get rid of the traditional standards of yeah. media reporting, and then there's this kind of gone in this other loopy direction where, uh, you know, in in my view, the the Democratic Party, while not nearly as extreme as the Republican Party, has really gone into some very very uh, worrying directions as well, but that sort of gets kind of sometimes underplayed by a media that feels its duty is to kind of not allow a, a, a hard right or far right person to come to power. And then that right. ends up sort of distorting reality in a whole other way. So I think it's a tough um, tough balance to strike as it always is. Um, and I, I wish there was some sort of rigid rule that we could follow uh, for every situation, but I guess it's it's a matter of feeling things out. And that's meant to be the job of journalism, right, is to feel those things out um, and and do your best to get it right. Yeah. I guess it depends what your, what outcome you're driving towards. Yeah. Um, And if it clicks, then maybe you're not always getting it quite right. 
yeah just to, just to give people a quick example of what i'm thinking about like for instance there was the 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 i know to what extent people uh were following this and, and I'm, i know i've seen people ivermectin has come to new zealand this this idiotic discourse has entered into the country but you know there was this whole thing in the u.s where the right was saying drink this um uh, medicine that's usually used for uh livestock deworming but there is a human version of it uh, they claim that there was evidence that it, it showed that it, it helped with COVID. That, that has not been proven. But um, instead of kind of news outlets on the liberal or democratic side, let's say, uh, saying that the reality of it, which is that this stuff has not been proven to, to help with COVID, uh, so don't take it. But there's other things that it could help with, sure. But it's not going to help you not die of COVID. They ended up you know, whether to score points in the right or to sort of like mock the kind of the, the, the Trumpist uh, uh, faction uh, in the United States, they took this maximalist view on the other side saying, oh, actually, no, this is just horse dewormer. And anyone who's taking this is, is drinking this ridiculous thing. And uh, so you get these kind of two very competing partisan polls that don't actually give you a very... Uh, accurate view of the world but they're just sort of trying to hit points against each other you know what i mean so that, that's a kind of an example of what i was talking about yeah i i agree with that and i think that that's it's an alienating force as well right where we're if everything just feels like a partisan kind of showpiece then it then it, then it the, the right has would probably justifiably feel a little bit unfair like unfairly done hard, hard done by there i <laughs> i think the, the solution would be just to have no allegiances and no allies and just mm. uh try and state the truth as clear-eyed and as best you can tell and you're going to probably make mistakes and you're not going to be the sole arbiter of truth but yeah i guess maybe the mistake there is that and and wanting to describe Trump as accurately as you can, you know, you've taken that as having to sort of take a partisan stance on the Democrat side when really all it means is just reporting the truth as best you see it. Mm. I maybe I sound yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, yeah, I think there's still a value in even if you don't equivocate or or you know make a false equivalent equivalency uh, between things you still want to strive to be truthful and accurate i feel like that's maybe what's gone away in the in the u.s system although I, you know i feel like uh i feel like the, the honestly in new zealand the the press has gotten better uh since like <laughs> in some ways at least uh, in other ways not but yeah I, I i feel like there was a far more of a pronounced kind of right tilt to uh to, to media coverage back in the uh you know let's say 2000s uh the key I'd, years? I'd say probably change on the key years what's that i was gonna say the key years i, I just you um... know key years as well maybe you could say like a soft kind of partisan uh, uh lean towards him but i feel like particularly on like like maori issues uh i felt yeah. like you know the media even even as late as the 2000s was very uh, notably, uh, you know, to the right on some of that stuff, and that's changed, which I, th I think is good. You know, I, I mean, just straight up racist or stuff like Russia right. and Seabed. Um, you know, the Herald led that campaign, saying, you know, the Herald's been anti-Maori like since its the inception. Like that's the whole point of the Herald is to uh, 
try and start war uh, with Maori. Like, <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I think a lot of what you're seeing there is this kind of newer crop of reporters and the younger reporters kind of bubbling up and through the ranks. And instead of, you know, you, people hate her, but, but instead of Duncan Garner, you've now got Tover O'Brien. And that's actually probably a much less, but she might destroy you, but she's kind of indiscriminate in that. It's not like she's biased to the left or right and who she just wants to destroy. Mm. Uh, and, uh, although I don't know, Duncan Garner's made, and, and, and just in general, you have just more people in positions of power that are a bit younger and maybe a bit more liberal leaning or at least more socially liberal leaning and mm. not as racist. <laughs> right. yeah, like, I know we said a high bar, but you know. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you think about, um, I, I believe it was Toby Manhire who recently wrote about the kind of um, budding polarization between the Herald, which is kind of. It wasn't Manhire. It was, in, it was in the so, spinoff. Um, maybe I'm yeah. Am I falsely? I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know if Don't worry. We both caught you. We both caught you a mistake. Okay. Well, let me start again. Uh, I don't know if you saw the piece in the spinoff about the budding polarization between uh, the Herald and stuff where the Herald's kind of sticking out a, a space as the kind of go-to right uh, leaning uh, paper. Stuff's moving more towards the left. Uh, I guess, what are your, your thoughts about this? Is this something that you know, is, is it something that, that we should be worried about in New Zealand media, media ecosystem, or is it actually maybe a, a, a healthy thing in some ways? I find that kind of interesting because what he blamed for it was almost this yeah. thing that we, that's good. The premises is were that, really bizarre. As <laughs> the subscribers, the, the push for subscribers is going to push people into taking stronger stances in partisan directions, which, yeah maybe uh, in that climate change and stuff does drive subscriber bases and stuff like that i, I i'm not sure that jo that will necessarily I, josh drummond I mean, had a really good takedown of it <laughs> if you want to yeah. go and um, set shut up what did he say um he said this is shit <laughs> <laughs> what what was the reasoning for why it was shit i can't tell you Oh. <laughs> it was it was far more reasoned than than what i've given right. um as in, uh, in was he saying like it, it's not really happening or it's happening for a different reason or what was this kind yeah of i think it was like the pre the premise of this is incorrect um mm. and the way that um you're trying to argue is 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 wrong um yeah. and the evidence isn't really there on the ground well, you know, speaking of, you mentioned climate change, speaking of biases and, and how do we balance bias with truth telling and everything. You know, I think on the initial climate change, it infuriates me that there isn't a bias. Uh, uh, it's, it's less so in, in New Zealand, although it's still, still not great, but, but especially UK, US media, a lot of other, uh, you know, major, major press outlets in, in, in big Western countries. Uh, that's, you know, I think having a bias on that issue is, is exactly the right thing. We should be biased in the same way that we will be biased in favor of preventing uh, some sort of mass atrocity or slaughter. Uh, Which climate change country. is going to end in, let's be clear. Right. And so that, that to me, you know, I feel like if, if we can have a bias towards the issues that matter, um, but, but 
stay out of loyalty to personalities and parties and institutions you know maybe that's one way to think about it well that, that, that's what i kind of had a problem with i'm sorry i, I only skimmed the piece I, but but that it kind of took this kind of god's eye view of like where good there's not good things and bad things it's just you know it, not everything is framed in the, these kind of right-wing and left-wing terms I think that maybe stuff is appearing to take a left-wing bent, but actually their stands are on like, you know, addressing inequities in our justice system or, you know, very left-wing, climate very left change. Wing. Uh, like, left I mean, wing. like, in, in, in what sense, why, why, if you're trying to build a respectable political movement, would be that, would, what, would that be something that you leave only to the left wing? Like what is inherent? I mean, it is what seems to happen, but what, there's nothing inherently left-wing necessarily like no. about all these stances. People with right-leaning views will still lose their homes when the sea level rises. Yeah, exactly. About climate change. I mean, uh, yeah. And and I think I just read some of Josh's points and I, I agree with them. Like why, <laughs> this is what bothered me, why can't you make a value judgment about what's actually happening here? Why are you equating these two things as if they're both just kind of cynical political plays? Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, I mean, some things are just less justifiable than others. Do you feel like there's um, this view almost that politics is theatre and therefore media must be theatre as well? Um. Maybe, maybe there's a kind of moral agnosticism of the comfortable that that <laughs> when you're not on the receiving end, when you're not on the when on when you're not on the pointy end of politics, as a lot of the people in the media aren't, you know, you can have this kind of moral agnosticism, and this is why we need to push for more Māori and Pacifica people in our newsrooms and people of uh, not just like middle class white backgrounds, which is what most of us are, um, you know. Yeah, we we frame um, policy that benefits us as morally neutral. <laughs> I think mm. too often, and and because it's just the status quo, and we don't see uh, we don't see who's being hurt by it. We don't see who's being left out. I think that if that's if there's a failing of the newsroom and of the makeups of our newsrooms, then it's that. We don't have enough diversity, both of class and ethnicity. Um, and we have the comfort levels to be able to stay above politics and not um, talk about their real results. Yeah. Uh, I'm not expressing myself very well, but that's, yeah. Well, no, you, you're not expressing any opinion. We want to make clear here for... Um, <laughs> does yeah. employ Hayden or will employ Hayden? I'm an analyst now. <laughs> I think this we've got time, uh, Bronco, if you wanted to wrap us up. I, I was just about to do it. Yep. Uh, I've also well, got a little I, I think um, thing to read as well, actually, at the end. So, Well, what I'll do is I'll uh, I'll just uh, wrap it up. I'll head and I'll get you to tell us where to find you. And then I'll, let, I'll kick it to you to do the, you know, the, the very final thing where people can, you know, yeah, give us money and, and subscribe. Oh, no, it's so something a little different today. Uh, oh, okay. Well, we're brilliant. Even better. Um, I think that's a great place to end on. 
Uh, and I think uh, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. I'm, I'm glad we got you on. I, I hope it's going to inspire a lot of thinking on people. Uh, before we cut things off, can you tell us quickly, Hayden, where can people find your work uh, and, and uh, anything else that you would want them to check out? Well, you can listen to me on Media Watch, usually on Wednesday evenings at 10.30 p.m. or just after 9 on Sunday mornings. Or I'm a, I do a bunch of freelance work for the spinoff, if you look me up there. Um, and I sometimes write. Who else do I write for? Twitter. Someone else. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I thought we had a Substack, but we found out that that no, was I, Sorry, I website. write for David Ferrier's Substack sometimes. So if you look up <laughs> Webworm, I've written a couple uh, of like existential ramblings for Webworm as well. Okay. Mm. I knew I wasn't crazy. But uh, <laughs> yes. I did. I did believe it for about an hour and twenty minutes. So you, you got me. <laughs> uh, well, okay. That that's another week of one two hundred. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again. Uh, I'm going to kick it to Kyle to to let you know uh, a few other things and, and yeah. how you can support us, Kyle. Yeah. Hey. Um. Thanks everyone for listening. Um. Hit us up at one of two hundred dot nz, or pop along to our Patreon, uh, one of two hundred, to support us if you want to have more independent journalism. Um, with a New Zealand outlook. We've just also been asked to give a quick shout out to Otaki Summer Camp um, by the organizers. This is a, a really good chance for people to uh, hear, discuss interesting ideas, learn from those involved in previous struggles and campaigning for uh, justice, anti-racist racism, equality in the environment. I get to meet a whole bunch of other people uh, alongside like going out to do some really cool outdoor activities. Uh, so hanging out in the mountains, um, going around the forests and rivers with a bunch of really experienced guides. It's been going since 2017 and it's kind of trying to revive this long tradition of political summer camps in New Zealand. It is three days long. Uh, it's politics, discussion, speakers, uh, music, uh, some of those outdoor experiences I, I described. It's open to anyone aged 70, 17 to 30 years old uh, and I've said if you're out, a bit outside that age range just to get in touch um, and they'll do the best to work with you. There is a cost to attend. Uh, it is this includes all food and accommodation. It's $130 per person but only $100 if you pay before the 20th of December and there are also scholarships available for those who need financial assistance. They're trying to uh, make sure the camp happens uh, in any way possible. Obviously COVID restrictions uh, could uh, interfere with that, but any tickets that are cancelled due to COVID will be refunded. Now, if you want to register for that, if, you're, if there's something you're interested in, you can find more information and you can register at otakisummercamp.com. That's O-T-A-K-I, summercamp.com. So check that out if, if that's something you're interested in. Um, yeah, organizers are really keen uh, for us to do a shout out uh, and yeah, get involved. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation 
Oh